Hi everyone. My name is Pankaj Mishra and I'll be your host for the SaaS Bhumi podcast. Over the next episodes, I'll be bringing deep conversations with SaaS founders, product builders, technologists, designers, investors and people who are shaping India's SaaS ecosystem. So stay tuned and keep listening. I'm really thrilled to be joined with Ilad uh, Gill, a serial entrepreneur, but more importantly, the author of High Growth Handbook. Now, this is the book which I have heard so many great things about in the ecosystem here itself. Founders are beginning to look at it as some kind of a, a bible, uh, a, you know, a handbook to solve some of their most practical problems in their work life. Ilad, it, it is such a pleasure to host you on this podcast. Ah, thanks so much for including me today. Let us start, uh, Ilad. Maybe you know the making of the book itself. Uh, it it comes across as you know a practical handbook, and the chapters themselves look like uh, you know the building blocks of a startup. Uh, how did you come up with this idea? You know, in this format, and and why? Can you take us through a little of that journey? Sure. Yeah. So um, the the book is very um, purposefully the way you describe it, in that there were a lot of common questions that I was getting from late stage founders that I've worked with, and so you know over time I've worked with uh, companies like um, Airbnb, Coinbase, Gusto, Instacart, Stripe, um, and others, and the same sets of questions kept coming up uh, from late stage startups. Uh, and so, and I realized that there wasn't very much content out there that actually addressed some of those questions. And most of the questions were pretty tactical. You know, it's not very valuable to tell somebody that A players hire A players and B players hire C players, because the real question is, well, how do you identify an A player? And not only that, but if you're adding 50 people a month to your company, how do you hire at scale? You know, those sorts of questions tend to be much more important. Um, so I pulled together an original outline for the book. It, it, it um, Ended up, I only ended up writing about a third of the chapters that I wanted to because it just kept getting longer and longer. And at some point, I just, you know, you just got to ship something. Um, but the original intention was actually to cover a lot of other areas that are really important, like sales and go to market, um, HR. You know, there's, there's a variety of different areas in the in the book that actually were not addressed. That um, my hope is to sort of publish in slim volumes or future addenda or something else, simply because. I, I think there's a lot of other content around scaling companies it just isn't out there still. From the experience you have had, Ilad, working with some of the brightest companies and, and amazing founders, and you yourself have been an entrepreneur, if you were to lay out the most common and, and the biggest mistakes that startup founders or startups make, how would you outline that for us? I think that there are... Um... Very different common mistakes if you're an early stage company versus a late stage company. And if you think about it as an early stage company, um, the main things you have to do is number one, um, you need to find product market fit, which is incredibly hard. So, you know, that involves uh, finding customers and building your product and doing sales and all the rest. Um, two is not run out of money, which is basically a proxy for uh, product market fit. And three is don't fight with your co founder. And normally when companies blow up, they blow up because they either ran out of money, um, which again is a sign of no product market fit, uh, or uh, co-founder conflicts. The number one reason that there are co-founder conflicts 
tend to be um, because nobody is actually in charge. And so one of the pieces of advice that's commonly given that I actually think is in some ways bad advice, in some ways good advice, is that you always need a co-founder or you should do equal co-founders. And I think people need to divorce equality in terms of equity from equality in terms of decision-making. I think in order to have a company really succeed, um, you need somebody who's clearly in charge, whether the equity is split equally or not. And clearly in charge could just mean they have a final vote. You know, you could still make a lot of decisions together and everything else. But ultimately, if there's a fork in the road, you need somebody who can um, make that call in terms of which, which branch to take. Um, and then the other big mistake that you make for early stage companies um, is just not really understanding either how to listen to customers or what your customers are saying. And so you often see people build very um, large, complicated products that nobody wants to use. And um, a lot of that just comes down to how do you hone down on customer development and market development. For a late stage company, the types of mistakes that are common are very different. Um, you know, three examples. One would be not building out an executive team early enough. Um, if you're a first time founder in particular, or you've never run a team at scale, your instincts are often to hire very smart individual contributors. Um, and you don't really understand the leverage of having a great executive in place. And that's why often when you see second time founders start a company within their first 15 people, they have three or four VPs and a CXO. And often as a first time founder, you ask, why does this person need all these executives? You know, like it's, it's only a 15 person company. But then after you've been through it once yourself, you realize the enormous leverage you get by building out an executive team. Um, Related to that, a common first-time mistake is not delegating sufficiently. Um, and then third, I think, is many founders today, particularly um, technical or product founders, uh, end up adding sales and a VP sales much too late in the life of a company. And they often wait until there's not only clear signs of product market fit, they'll bring on two SDRs, they'll test them out for six months, they'll do all these things when in reality, the second there's a sign of product market fit, it should be viewed as go time and it's time to hire um, a VP sales as, along with other executives and really start uh, going after the market aggressively. So th those are three examples. Um, maybe the fourth that I threw out there that happens a little bit more with certain types of e-commerce companies sometimes is um, not converging their unit economics soon enough. So, you know, early on in the life of many products, they may be money losing. And um, the idea is that you converge to a positive or very large gross margin over time. Um, and some companies, um, don't really have good plans or don't really execute on plans to convert their, convert their unit economics. And so a number of companies that have blown up famously over time, uh, did so because of that. Well, it's amazing, uh, what you talk about, Ilad, especially when it comes to decisions, like for example, hiring a VP sales, and there's so many other roles. And, and I've heard this from many founders about the fatal mistakes they have made in, in making these hard hires uh, how you know so i understand the problem uh, how to pick those signals if you're building a company the, the whole question about when to do it uh, is there a way that that could be emulated is, is there a best practice in that sense yeah i think once um there's a few different signs but um part of it too is the degree to which you've done customer development before you've shipped the product and there are some companies where they hire vp sales really early um, simply because they feel that they've proven out that the market exists and they may hire a VP sales, you know, a few weeks before a launch so that as you actually launch an enterprise or SaaS product, you have, um, you have somebody who's really driving the go to market motion. And often that happens in cases, for example, where you've, um, 
built an adjacent product before and you know that there's a real need or where you've um, built the same thing internally over and over for internal customers and then you're now selling something externally. I mean, PagerDuty was a good example of a company where you know every engineering team eventually needed to build a, a PagerDuty-like tool and then they just built it for everybody. So there's some moments where it's kind of clear that what you have is going to be needed and you want to hire somebody even before launch. There's other circumstances where there's uncertainty in terms of whether the market will adopt your product. And in those cases, sometimes you do it after launch and you start with founder-driven sales. Um, but often if you close a few large accounts, and large accounts could be you know 100K plus account, um, or it could be that you're closing lots of small accounts, or you suddenly see strong bottoms up motion, um, I would go and hire a VP sales immediately. And I think that um, often what you are increasingly seeing in the market is um, people are giving pre-product market fit advice to post-product market fit companies. And so if you go back five or 10 years, it was the opposite. People were given very bad advice that was post-product market fit advice to a company that just didn't have traction yet. So for example, you'd launch a product, you'd be six months in, nobody wants to buy it. And you'd be told by a VC or an advisor, go and hire a VP sales and hire 20 salespeople and let's go sell the product. And if the product is broken and nobody wants it, that's absolutely terrible advice. More recently, we've been getting a lot of people being given the exact opposite advice. They have really great um, bottoms up motion where people are adopting the product organically, where the founder is selling and has gotten a few large customers to adopt it. Um, and there's very clear market pull. And the advice that they get is, oh, go hire a few SDRs, which are sort of junior salespeople and see how they do and make sure that it isn't just founder-driven sales that works. And then after that, maybe you hire a director of sales and then you kind of build it up. And that's really terrible advice <laughs> from a number of perspectives. Um, you know, number one is you don't necessarily build out the right processes um, from a sales perspective. So just as there are great engineering processes and you want to hire a reasonably senior engineering person um, early on, and you don't just want to have a bunch of IC engineers um, straight out of school who don't know how to do code reviews or um, uh, design reviews or other things like that. Similarly for sales, you don't want to just hire a bunch of junior people and hope that process and best practice and everything else magically falls into place. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different reasons that you actually want to hire a VP sales early and a lot of technical or product centric founders, um, you know, tend to push back on that if they haven't really seen great sales before they worry about an early sales hire ruining their culture, or they, they worry about, are we really ready for this? And do we really need somebody of that? caliber driving our business, or they may worry that it's too early for the company to adopt it, or they may worry about costs. So there's all sorts of founder reasons to not do it, but I think most of those are wrong if your product is actually um, getting strong pull from the market. And Elad, is it, is it possible for you to illustrate some of these with, with examples that you have seen in your career and, and from what you have picked, um, especially when it comes to uh, making the right calls on these issues? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of companies that actually aren't credited with thinking about sales and distribution early did so. Um, Google is a great example where Amit Kordistani, who was a sales and BD executive um, at Netscape before that, got hired into Google, I think is in the first 10 or 15 employees. So they actually hired a senior um, sales and BD and business executive very early in the life of a company. Um, back when it was you know, primarily a consumer site um, and they hadn't really thought about how to monetize it. So I think you know, many of the companies that we think of as the 
really impressive um, sort of uh, true, truly era-defining companies are ones that focused on sales and marketing early um, and uh, who adopted it early. And then there's other examples where, you know, maybe people went to the enterprise a little bit too late in their life or, you know, never really built out a sales team. And some of these companies have done amazingly well, um, but it's possible they could have done better, you know, like GitHub um, before it was acquired by Microsoft did an amazing job of organic market traction, but they hadn't really focused on enterprise sales very effectively. And I think that created an opening for GitLab, for example, to really emerge as an enterprise sales centric product and company. Um, and I think that at the time it was GitHub's opportunity to lose and they, they kind of lost, you know, many years of execution by not focusing on it. So, um, you know, there's a positive and negative example there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, GitHub is such an amazing example that you talked about, uh, Ilad. I mean, for, even from outside and from so far away, you know, there's so much to learn from GitHub in that sense. Yeah, there's a number of companies. I mean, if you look at it, um, if you look at different companies, S S1s, uh, when they go public, you know, they file this S1, which allows you to see insights around their financials and customer bases and things like that. Um, when Slack filed to go public, and Slack is seen as one of the great sort of bottoms up adoption companies. Um, you know, something on the order of 40% of their revenue was from 570 customers. Um, and that's before they really implemented strong enterprise sales practices. Um, and so, you know, even the most bottoms up company had very high customer concentration. And I think if you look in S1 after S1, I think for Zoom at the time they went public, it was 30% of their revenue was 300 customers, you know? And so a small number of customers can make up a very large proportion of the revenue for some of the most widely used companies that are supposed to have the most bottoms up approaches. Um, and you know, you often wonder, and they've built amazing franchises in both cases. I mean, my God, zoom is truly a globally used consumer and enterprise product now. Um, you know, but in some cases like Slack, you know, maybe Microsoft wouldn't have been as strong of a contender, um, if they'd adopted enterprise sales a little bit earlier now, again, Slack, amazing company, amazing what they've built. Um, and so it's just a matter of, you know, even accelerating further the things that you're already doing. Ilad, if I may ask another question, uh, there is so much of focus on playbook-based learning. And if we, I have seen that a lot in India. Like there are founders who are starry-eyed, you know, looking up to examples like Slack and, and, and so many other great companies. And are there dangers in picking lessons from different playbooks? I mean, or, or let me rephrase that. When you are trying to learn from another playbook, uh, you know, how can you do it in, in the best way? What are the pitfalls? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's two or three things um, that come to mind based on your question. Number one is, I think the only good generic startup advice is that there's no good generic startup advice. So I do think each situation is unique. Each startup is unique. They sell the different customer bases. The team is different. The composition is different. There may be new technologies that enable new things. So, you know, the first thing I'd say is I, I do think that every situation in some sense is unique. Um, the flip side of that is um, I do think that there are certain areas that just don't make sense to reinvent because they're not a core part of what really matters to your company. Or alternatively, they've actually been underwent many, many years of process engineering and it's not just an art and it's not just made up, you know, there's actually real processes and thinking and best practices behind things. So for example, 
I often see technical founders want to reinvent sales from the ground up and do something radically different. But you know what? Sales actually works very effectively. It's been process engineers for decades in terms of tech sales. Um, there's well understood processes and approaches. And adopting those are going to be dramatically not only more efficient, but they're just going to work in a way that trying to reinvent it um, from scratch on average is not going to work. Um, so I, I do think that when you think about um, reinvention or doing novel things, you should ask first, is it truly important to my company? And second, will I actually be successful at reinventing this thing? Um, or should I, I put my energies against reinventing product or reinventing other areas that are actually going to be the, the basis for, for winning? I do think that from, uh, to your point on lessons learned, um, often people don't really know why they succeeded or they confuse um, the actual reasons with what they imagine the reasons to be in terms of why they succeeded. Oh. So I think that you have to be very careful about advice that's given because the advice may be, well, we did it this way, so you should too. But in reality, that founder or that executive who was part of that growth curve um, didn't realize the real underlying cause or driver, or they weren't very clear-eyed or strategic about what was truly happening. Um, you see that happen to an even greater extent when you have people who joined very late in the life of a company and didn't understand the underlying basis for some of the decisions that were made, and then they tack on or extrapolate their own reasons. And because they're a VP at you know, Flipkart or at some leading company, um, you know, people really listen to them and believe them, even if they had nothing to do with the actual success of the company. So I, I do think you need to be a little bit cautious. And, and it all comes back down to like first principles thinking and asking, okay, what was the real driver? What was the cause? Maybe I can talk to some early customers and ask them back in the day why they adopted or did certain things. Um, you know, so you almost have to do a historical treatment of something sometimes to really understand the underlying drivers of success or failure. Yeah, that's very well said, Ilad. In, in fact, the point that you made about talking to an early customer, I mean, that would be like gold mine of uh, insights. Yeah, and you need to make sure that they understand it themselves because if 10 years have passed and they're using a radically different product from what was launched 10 years before, they may not even remember themselves, right? They, they may say, oh, I really like the fact that it has XYZ security and permissions and all this other stuff, but that may not be the reason that they adopted uh, the product originally. So again, you, you kind of have to be careful with all the extrapolation um, that's done in a rear view mirror, but you know, often the decisions that are made or the paths that are pursued turn out to not have been that thoughtful or strategic. They, they tend to be a lot of happenstance that then works out and then every once in a while, you see something truly strategic happen. You know, when Google bought Android, for example, that was truly a strategic moment in terms mm -hmm. of the company thinking about the competitive environment um, and then acting on it uh, versus, um, you know, an, a more ad hoc thing. Um, and so I, I think most things are ad hoc, but every once in a while, you see a true moment of strategic thinking. Ilan, the other pillar or, or building block uh, is this whole topic of funding itself, funding a startup, funding growth. Now, even around here, there, there are different models that we are seeing. And I would definitely like a follow-up on understanding the Indian landscape better. You know, there is Zoho, which is bootstrap. You know, there is Freshworks, and there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if, you, if you were to help us with some foundational insights about approaching the funding itself at, at the term sheet level mm. uh, how to ensure you don't give give much you know give too much away or why does it matter to have control if at all what what are some of 
the do's and don'ts from what you have seen uh, when it comes to funding uh, mm. early and late stage? Yeah, I think there's an enormous amount of um, potential things to talk about there. I think fundamentally, um, to your point on Zoho versus Freshworks versus others, there's lots of different uh, models for fundraising and for funding a company. And if you can bootstrap, that can actually be great. Um, the biggest place where I've seen bootstrap startups fail is if they don't establish a proper board of directors or some form of um, true advisory capacity where people are meeting with them repeatedly and forcing a conversation around planning and growth and directions and things like that. And it, it doesn't have to be tied to governments. Um, if you think about it, venture capital is a bundled product where it's a bundle of um, advice, governance, and money. And in reality, the people who are great at allocating capital and making investments may not actually be very good at either giving advice or governance. People who are great at giving advice may be really bad at choosing companies to work with. Like there's all sorts of um, confounders there, but the fundamental point is um, as a startup, you kind of want to have all three and the capital could come from bootstrapping, but you should figure out advice and governance. And that's where I often see bootstrap companies fail in terms of really optimizing what they could be. You know, they kind of fall short because there's nobody asking them certain questions that are good to be asked of. Um, in terms of uh, what terms you should be negotiating for, I think there's three or four key ones. Um, in my mind, the most important things are, number one, are you working with somebody that you actually like and that you'd like to see over and over again uh, for a very long period of time, 10 years or whatever, however long it takes with your company? Because if you think of your co-founder as your spouse, um, then your board members, or especially your investor board members who are hard to get rid of, are like your in-laws. You know, They're like your father-in-law or mother-in-law. You're going to see them at family events, at holidays, at all sorts of things. And you, it's, you can't get rid of them. And so um, you need to find somebody that you really jive with and that you enjoy um, and who can provide you with real advice. And you know the nature of that advice may change over the life of a company. Um, so number one is what's that fit? And it's not just fit with an individual, it's fit with a firm because a firm takes the board seat, not the individual. Um, the second thing, which is related and perhaps more important is control. And there's three ways that control exerts itself. Uh, number one is at the board level. And largely control with the board means um, deciding who the CEO is. And that's really the primary um, uh, control mechanism relative to the founder is there's always that threat if investors or outsiders have majority control that they can fire the CEO. Um, the second level of control is what are known as protective provisions in your financing documents, which is a series of terms that define what where you need approval from um, the preferred stock, in other words, the investors, in order to do certain things. That may be approval on certain types of follow-on rounds you do. It could be approval on selling the company. It could be a variety of things. And originally, these protective provisions were put in place because investors were um, initially minority investors, and these were supposed to be protective of minority investor rights. And over the years and decades, they kind of ballooned uh, addressing all sorts of other topics where I think often they kind of go too far. And then the third level of control um, has to do more with uh, votes and the number of shares you control and things like that. And those tend to matter in most cases more when you're a public company than if you're a private company. And the way that people often address that is by getting super voting shares baked in early so that if they do go public, um, they still have control of the company after the fact. And that's actually a structure that um, Facebook and Google and others adopted, but also actually existed for decades before that, often with media companies like the Washington Post and others. I think in the, the 60s or 70s, I can't remember when they were put in, um, actually adopted the, these 
other class of shares with super voting rights. So it's a, it's a pretty old structure, actually. Um, it's been used over time, often in family dynasties or other things. Um, so I think control is incredibly important, and I'd happily trade off valuation for control and for working with the right person. Um, that said, obviously, valuation matters, amount of capital matters, um, the brand of the firms you work with can matter. Um, and there's the old saying that you can always raise more money, but you can't raise more equity. And so every time you do a financing round, I would encourage people to model out um, what that uh, dilution, not only of the round that you're doing, but of potential future rounds you'd have to do and try and figure out where you end up just so you have a clear picture over time of how much dilution you're really going to see and what, what's that going to mean at the end of the day. Is there anything specific when it comes to the first check? Uh, I know there are angels who come forward and, and you know help fund the early journey. Uh, but is there anything specific on this front, Ilad, when it comes to uh, the first or the first two checks to look out for? Yeah, I think um, I think ultimately I would view your angel investors or your early investors to some extent as a uh, diverse team of people. And by that, I mean, you want um, different skills and different outlooks um, and perspectives from people. And so, for example, um, you know, I have a very old blog post talking about the different types of angel investors you may want, and that may include people who are very um, good at sort of the nuts and bolts of a startup. So hiring and um, firing and product building and things like that. There may be people who are very good at lifecycle events for the company, future fundraises, or M&A. Um, there may be people who can introduce you to a dozen customers and help that way. Um, and so I think to some extent, you should think about it as a portfolio of skills and um, you know, really think through what are the set of skills that you want um, on board and view it as a basket of people um, and really think through you know, um, how you want to construct that group. Yeah, that's very well said. Looking at them as a portfolio of skills, that, that's very well said. Ilad, the, the other thing I have, I have noticed, uh, both in early stage and late stage founders, is putting together this board. Now, boards are a statutory requirement uh, in, in different countries. There are different, maybe, technicalities, but overall, it it becomes more like a checkbox. So you have investors, you have yourself as founder on the board. Uh, and, and, and the question I keep hearing is, uh, oh, we are too small to have to think of uh, a proper board. So, you know, and, and there are all those uh, questions that keep coming up. What is your, uh, you know, the whole playbook when it comes to looking at the board? When is the right time to put it together and why? And what does it mean as you grow, you know, as, as a company? You know, I think boards evolve um, enormously over the lifetime of a company. So an early stage Series A company will have a very different board um, from a public company. And that's not only in terms of size of board, you know, a public company will have, you know, six to, you know, maybe on the, on the crazy high end 20 members. Um, and, uh, you know, a Series A company will often have one external board member and then, you know, one to three founders. Um, so it's not just size, but it's also composition and role. And the role of the board in a, in a public or late stage company shifts dramatically because you start having 
compensation committees and audit committees and a variety of other committees where you need people who can effectively participate in those on your board. Um, while with an early stage company, you don't really get into those things until the, the company um, you know, matures quite a bit. Um, and so I think, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, to some extent, for an early stage board, you don't have that much choice because fundamentally the venture capitalist is the one who's providing the board member. And so it's sort of who you take money from. Um, sometimes you can negotiate an independent seat, um, either in parallel or instead of the, the Series A investor, although that's kind of rare. Um, and then you have a lot more leeway in terms of choice. And um, I think if you're choosing a board member, often you want to ask, again, what are the sets of skills that are missing from my board that I want to add? Um, you know, in the U.S., there's a very strong drive towards board diversity. So you can look at, um, you know, is it a woman or underrepresented minority? Uh, you can look at, um, you know, other aspects of, uh, you know, Reed Hoffman has this good saying that to some extent, an external board member is like a co-founder that you couldn't hire or an executive that you couldn't hire in, but you can give them a board seat and kind of bring them onto your team. So you kind of want that caliber of person as your board member. And then you want to kind of identify what are the areas that you specifically want that person to help with. And so I think, um, one thing that people don't do enough is just like they write a job rack for basically everything else in their company. When adding a board member, they should write up a job rack for the board member. What are they looking for? What are the skills they want? What's the years of experience that they want? Um, and how do they generally think about what they're looking for in that person? So then they have a common view with the other people who are interviewing and they can have a very targeted discussion around, does this person actually meet the set of things that I'm looking for? Um, and there's a few things in particular that I would look for beyond the skill set side. I think the personal rapport and the interpersonal style matters a lot. Um, and then also, what are the motivations for the person taking the board seat? The things you want to avoid, for example, is the independent board member who wants to join your board because they want to network with important people who are on your board. <laughs> or, um, you know, uh, like you don't want the person's stature in their own eyes to be driven by whether they take the board seat or not, because then they may be functioning in weird ways relative to your, your esteemed board members. Um, you, you don't want somebody who's going to talk down to you or be patronizing. Sometimes you see that with the quote unquote, you know, experienced board member operator who will talk down to you or as a new founder or who will try and steer you in directions they think the company should go. Right. And so there's a few almost like red flag warning signs when you interview board members around things like that, that you should be aware of. Yeah, that's very well said. You know, uh, Ilad, when you were talking about board, you know, one thought uh, came to my mind and that is around coaches. You know, there's some amazing stories about people like Bill Campbell, right? And and who coached some of the greatest entrepreneurs uh, in the Valley and elsewhere. Now, there are some founders who are self-learners, who are self-taught, who perhaps are sometimes uh, not comfortable with this idea of a mentor or a coach. And then there are others who keep seeking advice from everywhere. What do you think is the role of a so-called coach uh, and in whatever way you describe it when it comes to building and scaling a startup? And what are some of the best examples that you, you can share and illustrate some of the best practices? Yeah, so I'm reasonably skeptical of most people who self-style themselves as a startup coach. Um, I, I do think that there's a lot of room for learning from others and for mentorship and other things like that. Um, but I find that often the best 
approaches to that um, is either peer-to-peer related. So you find other founders either in a similar situation to yourself or who are one, two, three years ahead of you so that they're you know, always a step ahead of where you are and they can provide you with guidance and suggestions and how they made the decision and it's all fresh. So I think uh, peer-to-peer discussions and mentorship is great. And then I think I've seen some people successfully um, you know, bring on as an advisor, um, somebody who's been a very successful operator in the past, not necessarily a founder, although being a founder and operator helps, um, who can just weigh in on management issues or almost act as um, uh, a, a, help, a helper or advisor from that perspective. Um, and then the third approach I've seen is um, some founders are notorious for hiring in the people that they learn from. Um, because if your company is successful enough, you can hire great people, right? I mean, Larry and Sergey at Google were able to hire in Eric Schmidt, um, who before had run a public company, Novell, and before that was CTO at Sun. Or Mark Zuckerberg hired in Sheryl Sandberg, um, mm-hmm. who was the VP at Google, and he learned a lot about management and operating from her, for example. And so I think often you can hire in the people who effectively end up being your mentors if your company is succeeding, or at least people who can provide you good feedback and who you can watch and observe and learn from in terms of how they run things effectively. Um, and in general, my own personal biases towards those types of learning experiences over uh, somebody who calls himself a coach. Really well said. Uh, Ilad, they, we are seeing an unprecedented growth in India when it comes to SaaS companies. And in many ways, we have seen companies like Zoho start that out and Freshworks becoming the next poster child in that sense. What do you make of India SaaS? And I mean, first of all, how do you read it overall from where you sit and watch companies being built? Uh, there is also a lot of talk about, you know, what Salesforce is doing, what Zendesk is doing. So what do you have to say about the rise of India SaaS? And can we talk a little more about the models you see that work that don't? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very exciting um, to see the India SaaS scene evolve. And your point, um, there have been a number of companies that have come up that are doing, you know, really exciting things. So um, Zoho and Freshworks is two sort of preeminent ones. Um, So, uh, you know, in general, um, I feel like we're living through the sort of next era or next iteration of SaaS-based products. There was sort of the very, very early stuff with Salesforce and others in the early 2000s. Um, and obviously a lot of the emphasis around 2004 to 2012 or something like that was probably around social and mobile and the emergence of those technologies. At the same time, there was lots of great SaaS companies and a lot of the early uh, developer tools and infrastructure companies being founded around that same era. And I feel like we're in um, effectively the second wave of SaaS. One interesting um, aspect of the second wave is I remember in the 2010s, um, there was a lot of discussion of social enterprise products. Like why wasn't there more social features incorporated into enterprise products or more collaboration? Because Facebook was happening and Twitter was happening and LinkedIn was happening and all these things that people thought would make it naturally into enterprise apps. And I feel like all that's finally happening now. You know, you see tools like Figma or Airtable or Notion or some of these sort of preeminent um, sort of next-gen companies. Retool might be another example. A Snowflake actually be a great example where you have collaboration built in um, into the very core of what the product does. Um, and in some cases, like Snowflake, it's it's not 
you know, the most expected place to find something like that. So um, I think one of the exciting aspects of this next wave of SaaS is just this this final move towards collaboration and um, these more integrative features that, that didn't really um, get much emphasis 10 years ago. Yeah, it, it is very right that the whole emphasis and, and it is now expressing itself when it comes to collaboration. But I, I'm curious. I mean, you've thought about this much more than I have. What do you view as most interesting right now in the India SaaS um, market or scene? No, exactly. I, I like I have tracked uh, the services industry before, uh, Infosys and Wipro's of the world, uh, the whole rise of that industry. And now I'm looking at this very closely. There are amazing contrasts. Uh, and I think uh, the founders who are building SaaS companies seem to be more open to learning from other playbooks. The focus on product and design uh, is something very refreshing overall. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would learn from you, Ilad, is when you see this landscape, what do you think will decide winners or losers, you know, in, in that sense? Because this is another great battle shaping in front of us, uh, what Salesforce did to Oracle in that sense. And now we are seeing this new breed of SaaS companies who are looking at Salesforce as a legacy. These cycles keep repeating, but if you were to take a 32,000 feet view, uh, it would help to understand uh, what uh, makes them winners or losers. You know, what are those existential points? I think it shifts a lot over the life of a company. So, for example, um, when you're in an early stage company and you lack distribution, the number one basis for you succeeding is to make a 10x better product. And 10x better could mean 10x cheaper, or it could be all sorts of features that are missing from other products. It could mean addressing market niches that the existing incumbents don't address. It could be um, opening up a new market segment. Um, and so, uh, you know, early on, it's really about product. And the companies that I think that really sustain realize later that not only is product the most important thing, um, but sales and distribution becomes a core asset and moat of the company. And so the very best SaaS companies, I feel, eventually start thinking about sales and distribution as a moat. And so that would be like Salesforce's, um, you know, app platform um, that may be multi-year contracts and really aggressive sales forces like what Oracle has. I mean, if you think about it, Oracle is still sustained in a reasonably incredible way over 40 years or maybe 50 years now. You know, it's just um, crazy that that's still such a core product for so many yeah. customers, you know. Um, and in part, I think it's because of their multi-year contracts. I think it's they have different forms of lock-in in terms of ecosystem and other things. And so, you know, it's kind of incredible that they're still um, s- such a big company. Um, you know, Microsoft is really sustained and feels a little bit reborn, not only because they had these sort of cash cows that allowed them to survive and fuel their growth, but also because they've become much more aggressive in terms of everything from buying GitHub on through to launching a Slack competitor called Teams pretty rapidly and then getting good share for that. So, um, you know, that's a great example of using distribution to its own advantage. And one could argue that some of the um, uh, some of the growth that Slack would have had has gone to Microsoft Teams instead because Microsoft fast followed them. And in general, um, I think where product and technical founders need to make a transition is, you know, they often win early because they build a 10x better product and so they reject out of hand building products or buying products internally that aren't 10x better. But once you're the incumbent and once you have distribution, 
you can have something that's 80% better and still win. You know, you don't have to be the best product. You just need to have the distribution channel, the ability to cross-sell and bundle, the customer relationship, um, the vendor management relationship, all the rest of it. You've already passed the security audits. You know, the sale for you is dramatically easier. Um, and so I think a lot of the longest sustaining companies, number one, come up with follow-on products and, you know, they're a-religious about buying them versus building them. And number two, they realize that distribution is one of their moats now and they use that aggressively. And that's one of the reasons they build or buy new products and then cross-sell or bundle them. Ilan, you know, in India has been more known for IT services industry. And, you know, the question has been for a long time, uh, when will Indian IT industry build a product, a, a global product? Now, there, I, I see potentials, uh, you know, on the horizon. But from what you see, do you think... Uh, the SaaS companies can change that perception. Do you see potential products that can become those, you know, long uh, battle hardened, uh, you know, institutions that go through different cycles? What will it take to achieve that kind of uh, sustainability? Yeah, I think it's it's um, very available. And I think one of the big shifts over even just the last decade is the proportion of businesses that are very comfortable buying all their software online. And so that opens up global markets in a way that didn't really exist before. And then similarly, there's so much more bottoms up buying of software than there used to be in the context of an enterprise. And so those two trends really open the door for any company from anywhere um, to be able to build and ship a product that can get adopted at scale. You know, there's no reason that Airtable necessarily had to have been founded in the US. It could easily have been founded in India, right? And that's true for many of, of the companies of this next wave and, you know, if you think about distribution and adoption and other things, the methodologies have shifted so dramatically um, that I think there's a lot of room for people to just come and address global markets very early. Yeah, no, that's good to know. That, that's really good to know because uh, there, there is a lot of hunger around here that I notice in, among the founders who believe they can go all the way. And the question is what it will take for them to survive the you know, the startup value of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question for everybody. And so um, a lot of it just comes down to the degree to which you're exposed to being in the flow for discovering what customers really need and then being able to build it and address it for them at scale. And the hard part is often figuring out what does somebody need? You know, if I look at something like Checker, which is a background checking API company, in hindsight, that's kind of an obvious thing to build, but at the time it was very novel. You know, they were the only company that was really building a modern API for what they were doing. And if you look at a big enterprise, you know, Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 company or Global 1000 company, um, you should be able to almost create like a map of what are all the manual processes or what are all the things that people are doing in a really rote way that should be automated. And then you should be able to build product for them. And so UiPath is a really interesting example where as far as I know, it started off as a Romanian consulting or services shop. And then eventually they came up with RPA, this robotic process automation. And my understanding is, you know, amongst the many use cases for them, one of the big ones is um, uh, invoice um, uh, management. And so, you know, f- fundamentally, they probably saw that problem because they were working with very large customers. And one of the reasons that at least Silicon Valley companies end up failing in terms of finding those really big unmet needs in Fortune 500 customers is all their first customers 
are the breakout technology companies. You know, they'll go to a Coinbase, they'll go to a Stripe or something like that. And those companies may have very different needs from a 40 or 50 year old retail products company. Yeah. Um, and so they build for their local environment instead of building for the global large enterprise environment. Um, but I think if you do the right analysis, you can start to discover other things that very large companies need and you can start, um, or mid market and large, I should say, because you often want to start in the mid market. Um, uh, and then you can really address something that has a global uh, impact. Yeah, that, that's a very important point you make, Ilad. Like, who are you building for? And, and that can actually shape the future of your company. Absolutely. So what you are talking about is the whole customer mix or, or revenue mix in that sense and use that as a strategy to grow, scale, survive, right? Yeah, it's basically like um, the canonical startup playbook is build something for yourself or build something for your friends. And if you're working at a technology company or at a startup and you're just building for a lot of other, other startups, that's actually a great strategy, right? That led to Stripe and that led to Twilio and that led to a variety of other businesses. But not every business needs to start that way. <laughs> you know, um, there's lots of unmet needs for startups, but there's actually probably even more unmet needs for large enterprises. But you just don't know anybody at these large enterprises. Or you don't really know their needs very well. And so then the question is, how do you discover those needs? I bet if you went and looked at, for example, what Accenture or Wipro or any of these companies keep building over and over for customers, you could probably find five or six products that actually need to be built at scale um, for the same set of customers, right? Because you're just building probably the same things over and over again. Um, and so the question is, what are those things you keep building? And can you actually develop that as a product instead of as a service? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what I also sometimes fail to understand is, you know, the, the likes of Infosys, TCS or Wipro, they have been solving enterprise problems of Fortune 100, 500 over decades, but it, but they haven't built products that solve that problem, uh, you know, again and again. Uh, is that the mindset uh, block? Yeah, I think so. I think it's mindset. I think it's talent. I think it's approach to business. It's approach to follow on business. It's much better to get ongoing contracts with people than it is to actually build a SaaS product that's going to displace that workforce that you have. Um, you know, one of the really interesting things I think is that a lot of the no code and low code companies where they're making it really easy for any internal person to build an application or tool um, using simple templates and often a spreadsheet is sort of a backend. Um, are basically, to some extent, things that are going to convert professional services revenue into um, SaaS revenue, right? And that's one of the big, I think the big components of that are basically uh, low-code, no-code is one big component. Um, RPA, which really just means, in some sense, putting APIs on top of legacy software and manipulating them programmatically. Uh, and then perhaps um, things like a Zapier or related companies, Parabola, you know, things that are stitching together different APIs or different... Um, data blocks. And so, you know, those three things to me are the sassification of services revenue, right? They're taking different pieces of what you do as a services company and they're turning it into off-the-shelf software that anybody can manipulate easily um, to build programmatic applications. So, or pro programmatically driven applications. So um, I think that's a really big shift that's going to take 10 years but I think it's overall a massive force in the enterprise that's happening. Wow. 
then I think some of the SaaS companies should definitely look at the problems that Infosys, Wipro's of the world are solving. It makes sense. The final question, Ilad, in this conversation, we will be back with you know another one in the series, is you talked about wrong advice. And I think there is too much of it around us. In your experience of working and watching startups for such a long time, what are some of the most common wrong advices that you can handpick uh, to steer clear of? You know, I think it's really um, contextual. And I think there's lots of different um, pieces of the bad advice that are given. And in general, I think um, most of them tend to either cluster around hiring uh, or letting people go. So, you know, um, that's one big area, I think, of bad advice. I think another one is around fundraising and what to optimize for. Um, But I think the reality is, a lot of the bad advice now, as mentioned earlier, I think can be summed up as post-product market fit advice being given to pre-product market fit companies and vice versa. And I think what's happened, at least in the U.S. market, is there's an enormous amount of angels um, who have been um, you know, given money to invest through scout programs or other things, and in many cases are very smart and talented people as part of those programs. But in some cases, there's also people who are six months into their own startup. They've never run anything before. And in some cases, those people are giving advice without necessarily, um, you know, having lived through the situation or really understanding it and not necessarily having the, the perspective that they should refer that founder to talk to somebody who has seen it directly. And so often if I see a situation I don't understand. I don't try and make something up. I say, oh, I don't know anything about this aspect of go-to-market you're talking about, but you know, this really smart person who's done it before would be a great person for you to talk to. Do you want to talk to them? You know, And so I think um, a lot of advice that you can give in a positive way as an investor or as an angel is effectively being a route board to the people who really understand things well and suggesting um, that founders or executives connect with those people who really have that depth of knowledge. Um, for the specific area that the founder needs help with. Yeah, that, that's very well said, Ilad, because uh, that is invaluable. People who've been there, done that, and to be able to identify and connect with them, uh, that's worth it. Yeah, and it's perfectly fine to say, I don't know, in all spheres of life. And, you know, that's especially true when giving advice. <laughs> awesome. Uh, no, th- this was amazing, Ilad. And, uh, you know, I think in, in this, while we had a, a, a good launchpad uh, kind of a conversation and some very important insights came up, uh, the, the next conversation in this series would be, you know, going deeper into some of the enterprise building blocks, startup building blocks, from hiring to so many other things that you've talked about in your book and which are so important to learn from. Uh, thanks for this conversation, Ilad. Hope, uh, you know, all of us come out of the crisis that we are in and uh, more power to you. Oh, great. Thank you so much for making the time to talk. Thank you.